I'm Andrew Skipper. I'm head of the Africa practice at Hogan Lovells and have wide-ranging Africa experience from business to art and culture. I'm co-vice chair of the Smithsonian National Museum of African Art and recently became co-chair of the UK government's Africa Investors Group. I've been having conversations with some of Africa's top business minds and investors alongside key cultural influencers. But it's also critical to talk to influential people and commentators from outside the continent. The election in America has once again put in the spotlight the USA's approach to the Africa continent, which is especially important given the fact that the USA has been one of the biggest investors on the continent for some time, albeit untrumpeted. And the clear move by all major global powers currently to increasingly focus on the continent. So today I'm delighted to turn to my colleagues, Senator Norm Coleman, US Senator from Minnesota and Mayor of St. Paul, Minnesota, Chief Prosecutor and Solicitor General, and Ivan Zapian, who was Chief of Staff in both the House and the Senate. So today we get perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Welcome to you both. It's a pleasure to be able to talk to you. Andrew, great pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Andrew. It's great to have you both. So first up, um, it's been a really turbulent period with legal wrangles still to come. How do you both see the, the next week's panning out? And assuming we get a new administration, what are the key areas we should look to for focus? Maybe start with you, Norm, on that first question and then move on. I'm going to defer to Ivan because he represents uh, what uh, appears to be, you know, what I, I would say is the prevailing party at the presidential level. What I will do after that, Andrew, is I will then move a little down ballot. Uh, America has, uh, you know, three branches of government, a judiciary, uh, a legislature, and an executive. So I'm going to defer to Ivan on the executive where, you know, the uh, team, Democrat team with, with, pre with Joe Biden uh, being declared president, the president-elect, uh, has been successful. Uh, but the Republicans were very successful at, at the legislative level, at the, uh, both in Congress and at, below that at state legislative levels. Uh, and of course, the president himself had substantial impact on the Supreme Court, which will not change dramatically with, uh, with, uh, with the new president. Uh, there may be a justice or two that's going to uh, may retire uh, in the next four years, but uh, President Trump certainly stamped his mark on the U.S. Supreme Court, which will have an impact for decades to come. So, Ivan, I'll defer to you to kind of uh, the opening salvo in terms of how you're playing out now with President uh, with Biden, Joe, Vice President Biden being declared the winner of the presidential contest. Yes, it's it's difficult for people to say this, but uh, Joe Biden is in fact the president-elect of the United States. I think from a democratic perspective, as well as virtually every major global leader who has called to recognize President-elect Joe Biden, you know, from a democratic perspective, you know, I think we, you know, people feel good. Um, you know, if we were doing this, Andrew, you know, four months, I would start every presentation by saying that, uh, you know, presidents normally get reelected. It's only been a handful of presidents in U.S. history that have, in fact, not gotten reelected. So um, the fact that we were able to beat an incumbent president uh, is a big deal. The fact that we... Uh, were able to win the popular vote is a big deal. Um, it was a closely fought election. It was very close. Um, you know, some will, we'll, there, there are still, you know, there's still data that we have to look at, but, you know, Joe and, you know, Joe Biden ran a, you know, a very disciplined campaign. They were focused uh, throughout. And I expect the next couple of weeks to play out in similar fashion. 
So if you look at the campaign, the campaign, you know, the campaign certainly for the last three months, you know, it involved the Republicans trying to bring Joe Biden into their turf. Joe Biden and his campaign stayed steady and focused on what he was doing. And I expect the next couple of weeks and certainly the first hundred days to uh, be similar. You know, I, th- I think you will see Joe Biden uh, start to act like a uh, president of the United States. I think he will be very focused on tackling what is is currently the biggest crisis in the world and certainly in the U.S. is, is escalating rapidly, which is on COVID-19. So I, I think in the next in the ne- in the next three to four weeks, you will see the, the president start to work on that, start to inform the American people what his plans are and slowly out his cabinet. So, Norm, picking up the, the bit below that. Andrew, I would note that uh, this was a closely fought election, in spite of the fact that, that the pollsters had the uh, you know, vice president winning by 10 points, by 12 points, you know, 98% chance of being elected. In the end, uh, this race was decided by probably less than 100,000 votes total in, in about, at, at, a, at a 100, over 140 million cast uh, in, in three states, in, in Arizona, Georgia, and Pennsylvania states that, that the uh, president, President Trump, had won previously, uh, but appears not to have won this time. And as a result, uh, Joe Biden is the president-elect and, and uh, you know, I expect to be sworn in on uh, in January. But a very, very close race. But Republicans are fairly confident about the, the election. And just an observation I'll, I'll make in, in that, you know, certainly the most driving force, if one looked at the polls, it, it, to give them any validity, the Democrats in this race was was not a Democrat progressive agenda. It was they hated they hated Donald Trump. Uh, that, that was it was more against a statement against Donald Trump for those who voted against him, and, you know, versus a statement for him. And, and so Donald Trump's not on the ballot in the Georgia special election. Uh, and and the prospect and and my good friend Ivan Zapin would always say this was never going to happen. But from a Republican perspective, you know our concern was that if the Democrats control the Senate control the presidency and control the House of Representatives. They would have control over every branch of government and could do what they want. And there were major forces of the Democratic Party, including the former president, uh, uh, President Obama, who said we need to get rid of the filibuster. We should only require 51 votes. And then the last thing at the lower level, uh, below that, is the House of Representatives, which again, all the pollsters had the Democrats picking up between 10 and 20 seats. As we stand here today, there are still a couple of races outstanding, but it appears that Republicans may pick up a, a net of close to 10 seats or win 10 seats, maybe net eight. Uh, there were two seats in Georgia that by reapportionment, they weren't contested. They, they were Democrat seats. So, so if you go below ballot at the uh, Senate level, the House level, it was a good night for Republicans. And then the final piece is below that at, at state legislatures. Democrats had the opportunity to pick up a number of state legislators. And in Minnesota, they had to win, you know, one seat or two seats in the state Senate to flip that in North Carolina and a number of other places. It didn't happen. If anything, uh, Republicans actually, I think, picked up one, flipped one state legislature. And state legislatures in Minnesota are are the other groups that do reapportionment, which is coming up now in 2020. They will set the boundaries for political, uh, for congressional seats for the next 10 years. And so Republicans will now have an advantage in that regard. So uh, it, it, it was a, a kind of mixed result. Uh, clearly, Donald Trump energized a group of people uh, that, that a lot of folks think 
they thought he wouldn't energize and, and uh, not enough of them to ultimately win races in, in an Arizona, a Georgia, a Pennsylvania, but enough to say, hey, you know, 70 million people voted for him. And I think one of the challenges Republicans have as they move forward is how can you keep that coalition together uh, without Donald Trump? If I could just jump in, because I think, you know, I, I, I think Norm's right. I mean, I think Democrats are spiritually deflated that they didn't win on day one everything. But I but I will say when we started this cycle, you know, Democrats had a zero chance of taking back the Senate. And actually, as we speak now, we still do. Right. So there's still there's still an opportunity that we take back the Senate. Secondly, I would say in the House of Representatives, yeah, Republicans picked up seats and we wish we would have won more, but they only picked up seats in largely Republican districts. So they didn't knock off any Democrats. Um, you know, Democrats didn't knock off any Republicans, but to the historical context of the presidential race, I mean, we Democrats had not won Georgia in 20 years. They had not won Arizona in, in, in the same period of time. And even though it was a very closely contested race, you know, when you're president of the United States, you have the overwhelming overwhelming advantage to win in those, in particularly in the states in which you won before. So even though it was close, the fact that Democrats were able, able to take those back, you know, if you put that into sort of the equation of the odds against that happening, you know, it's a, it's a pretty remarkable. And yes, 71 million people voted for Donald Trump, but 75 million, maybe 76 million, more, more people than have ever voted for a, a, a presidential candidate were vote for Joe Biden. So it's a closely divided country. You know, these elections were, 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 were close. The US is one of the biggest investors on the African continent. But it's been said by people that the US policymakers, as I've heard, often see Africa as a globally disconnected rural continent with economies anchored in agriculture or the extractive industries. And sometimes it's, there's a sense that Africa is little more than a speck on the American political landscape. Do you think there's any substance to this? And is it, is, is it right? And, and do you, can you see any changes going forward, almost regardless of administration? So I'll jump in first, Ivan, uh, having served on the Foreign Relations Committee and on the African Subcommittee. And, and unfortunately, I will start by saying there, there is some credence to that in, in terms of, well, let me back up. First, if you look at, you know, people have, have uh, so much focus and so much energy. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the focus has been, uh, and certainly in the last few years, China, okay, and, 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 and so looking east, at the same time, the, there has always been a major focus in the Mideast, uh, certainly Africa is part of that, North Africa, but not necessarily seen as, as all of Africa. Uh, and so, you know, with the, the incredible focus on China, uh, and that then, of course, brings in the discussion, our allies in Japan, our allies in Korea, uh, Vietnam, which is a growing economy. It, it, it's there's kind of, you know, only so much focus that folks have. That's on the, the of concern side. If, if I can give the positive for, uh, from an American policy perspective, first, uh, by all indications, you know, Africa, you know, home to the world's, you know, you know fastest or second fastest, I think the statistics may be growing economy. Uh, you know, if you look at places like Rwanda and, and, and how they've grown from the challenges that they faced, you know, a number of years ago, uh, South Sudan, others, uh, Cote d'Ivoire, they're, they're, you know, they're, so you've got a fast-growing economy and you have China playing heavily. Uh, 
in those economies. China, you know, look, right, China looking at, at, at Africa as a kind of a resource opportunity. Uh, China looking at uh, Africa, you know, growing economies and how do they tap into that. Uh, and, and China then are just on the political side. So the, the fact that China is playing so heavily, I think, has caught the attention of American policymakers, should capture the attention of American investors. Uh, and and uh, perhaps folks then will, will take a, uh, a, a harder and more sustained look at what the economic opportunities are. So we simply don't yield, you know, that, that, that turf, that territory to China. So, Andrew, just just to get, just to add on that, um, you know, Senator Coleman and I, who you know come from different perspectives, but you know, we've done enough of these that you know this is one place where we always agree. I I, I think that you know the the influence of China um, is going to be something that obviously was at the center of the Trump administration. I think it's going to be at the center of the Biden administration, and um, as it relates to Africa. You know, I, I agree wholeheartedly with uh, Senator Coleman. I think that that, that pattern is going to continue. You know, I, th I think the one place where you will see some differences from a Biden administration, which I think should open up um, investment opportunities and certainly more visibility um, from Africa to the United States, is I think, yeah, I think in the first 100 days, Joe Biden, you know, and his State Department and, you know, and, and, and you know, his foreign policy apparatus is going to be very focused on reestablishing relationships with people around the globe uh, and making sure that conversations are starting to take place that, in their opinion, were not in the place that they should be, which I think is an advantage. The second piece that I think, you know, that I think will be very helpful, you know, to the uh, to the continent is that, you know, Joe Biden is a, a multilateralist. And I think one of the issues that he's very focused on is climate change. Change. And, and not only is he focused on that, but his approach to climate change is that, you know, you really need to bring the whole world together to help solve, you know, the world's biggest problems. And secondly, you know, secondly and immediately, you know, to the extent that, you know, to the extent that, you know, the African-American community in uh, the United States, you know, um, is helpful in this regards, you know, that, you know, Joe Biden in his, in his acceptance speech, you know, acknowledged what everybody in the U.S. knows, which is African-Americans actually literally delivered him to be president of the United States. So there will be a lot of people, you know, from the community who have, you know, a fondness and um, interactions with Africa that will be part of his uh, cabinet, his inner circle, and certainly have a lot of influence. Do you get any sense, either, either of you, that, um, that the global movement for Black Lives Matter might influence uh, a more informed um, and engaged approach with Africa, with a more cultural focus? A lot of the, the work I do um, is, is connected with the cultural side of things. So we've seen the, the extraordinary popularity of the new Smithsonian African American Museum. Um, do you see this as being um, a positive opportunity to engage with the continent? I'm going to just reflect on something you said, which I think is more, I, I think more important than even quote the Black Lives Matter, which gets to be a, a sticky political uh, situation in terms of the organization of Black Lives Matter versus the concept of Black Lives Matter. And it's the point I even made earlier about the president, uh, pre president-elect Biden's election uh, in large measure is due to the, the his ability uh, to bring out the African-American vote in this country far exceeding, you know, exceeding what Hillary, I mean, Hillary Clinton did 
when she lost to Donald Trump. And if you looked at the postmortems after the Trump-Clinton election, uh, it, it was, I think, one of the predominant you know, thoughts was her failure to energize and mobilize the African-American community. So here you have a, here you have a president who clearly, even in the primaries, noted his, again, this is, I mean, this is a Republican just as an observer, I mean, I'll turn to you as an insider, kind of watching this and, and seeing how important, you know, that vote was. So then the question really, really becomes uh, how much African-Americans care about Africa, which, which is an, an important question. There, you know, there, there are some communities, you know, such as the, the American Jewish community, uh, deeply engaged, you know, what we call the, dis, the diaspora community, uh, folks who, by the way, you know, never, never grew up in Israel, never you know, have a historical relation, but are deeply involved, and 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 as a result, deeply involved politically, uh, and 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 fight way above their weight, uh, American Jews in terms of the American political process. So I think an interesting question is 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 uh, how engaged is is the Congressional Black Caucus, which is a dominating caucus in the U.S. Congress, uh, in terms of, of seeking to uh, support investment and, and, and more opportunity, both on the public and private side in Africa. Uh, and Ivan, I'll, I'll turn to you to, you know, to, to respond, but I, I think that's, it's a, that question is out there, but there's no doubt as to the impact within this country of an African-American community on the political process and on the fate of, of, of Democrats uh, and certainly uh, Joe Biden in terms of actually winning the presidency. Yeah, so Andrew, that's a great question. I, I you know, I, I don't know that I that I have a definite answer, but I can tell you what my gut says about that. I think, you know, I, I think Joe Biden's uh, election, uh, going back to the primary, as Senator Coleman said, you know, just for the context, you know, he won his primary because a prominent. He won his primary because a prominent African-American leader in South Carolina, you know, said three days before the primary that Joe Biden was the right guy. And uh, as a result of that, African-American women specifically turned out in droves and, and, and put him in a position to continue in the primary. He won the presidency largely driven by African-American women. He has recognized that. He's got a vice president. You know who has African American uh, African American descendancy. She's the daughter of immigrants. Culturally speaking, which was part of your question. Culturally speaking, I do think that the Black Lives Matter plus what happened in this election, you know, is is going to create a new cultural phenomenon where you know there will be a lot of introspection about the relationship between you know African Americans in Africa, and I think there is plenty of room to for that conversation to take place and to benefit, um, you know, to benefit Africa as a result. Picking up the climate change point, I think there's Africa is becoming increasingly the the forefront of global discussions on on climate change, not least because it's natural resources. And um, we were talking to Ellen Sirleaf Johnson recently, who said that the issues which most have to acknowledge arose out of the actions of the rich West now require action from poorer nations. How do you see the America, the USA, being? Is it prepared to play its part in delivering on the on the climate agenda now, or do you think it will hold back at all? You know, so I think from a Biden, you know, from a Biden perspective and, you know, and and I think, you know, there'll, there'll be an element of congressional 
um, you know, uh, discussions on this. But I think from a Biden you know, perspective, I think certainly one of the elements that drew the coalition that elected him was the view that climate change is an existential crisis and that the time that we don't have much time to turn this around. So I fully, I, I feel fully expect that Joe Biden and his administration is going to be very focused um, immediately on 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 figuring out ways in which the, you know, the globe you know can come together on this issue, and I certainly expect that the Biden administration will have a deliberative process where you know obviously listening to our allies you know and people around the globe on how the best approach this will be front and center of that, and you know I you know in terms of in terms of timing I you know I think that this is a day one issue, obviously you know COVID and the economy and other issues will 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 uh, dominate his time, but he has very many able uh, lieutenants where he can delegate some of these issues, and I expect he will. So, Andrew, one of the areas that I was going to say that that uh, I, I did I would not expect uh, a lot of change, uh, or there be continuity uh, between the Trump administration and the Biden administration. But I'm going to qualify this in a second would be, for instance, in the work of the uh, Development Finance Corporation, DSC, which uh, you know, we're all aware of, I think, as late as uh, just, a few, uh, just uh, a few weeks ago, you know, had their uh, convened a group of African leaders, uh, you know, for, invest, for investment. But, but the one area where I would question, and actually, and I don't have the answer, it's not a rhetorical question, I turn to my good friend Ivan, his perspective, uh, is the one thing the Trump administration did believe in uh, was nuclear energy, I believe, that, that DFC kind of, uh, you know, updated their you know, nuclear energy policy. Uh, and we're actually looking for some investment in Africa uh, as, as the U.S. nuclear firm doing some work in, in, Af in South Africa. And I'm wondering whether, whether that is something the Biden administration would put the brakes on. Uh, nuclear energy is, is, is uh, certainly, uh, you know, from the Trump administration perspective, uh, clean energy uh, and, and, and something that should be developed, but uh, certainly a lot of folks in, on, in, on the green side that, for whatever reason, uh, see nuclear energy still as being problematic. And so uh, across the board, I would think that the work of the DFC that they're doing, you know, in terms of, of, of uh, you know, in, investing in Africa, uh, you know, new, uh, new prosper African investment, you know, all these things that they were doing, uh, I, I think continue but I wonder on the nuclear side whether there may be a little kind of pulling back a little bit. That's a that's Senator. That that's a great question. I think that you know I think that as you pointed out, the sort of green elements are of our political spectrum all live in the Democratic tent. So I would expect that there will be a discussion. I expect that there will be a pushback. But I also think that there are elements in the party given you know, given particular states and given particular industries, you know, that have been successful in balancing policies so that it's more nuanced and uh, there's, there will be opportunities for, for, for the nuclear, for the nuclear energy and, and all of its elements to continue to move forward. Ivan, you, you came for also from the, the private sector and, and they remain committed to the continent. Now COVID has basically, COVID has potentially disrupted the global supply chain and the Africa Union is demanding a new paradigm, um, which much more of this chain is probably going to be based in Africa and moving out of the Far East and China in particular and supported by extraordinary demographic shifts. Do you think this is an opportunity for American 
business, both in terms of just general investment, but also in terms of shifting the supply chain a little from China? Do you see, do you see that as being an opportunity? I think that's um, absolutely the case. Um, one of the interesting things about COVID is that it slowed down the economy, it has changed habits, uh, but one thing it has actually done is that it, in the U.S. certainly, you know, is that consumption is actually at an all-time high in many ways, right? So the so the need for, for the need for the supply chain to be fully engaged in order to keep the economy moving forward, you know, whether it's Legos, whether it's cars, whether it's clothes, regardless, um, is you know is probably more important today than it was before COVID. Frankly, we we saw the 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 disruptions and the costs that it had in terms of what. What retailers and other, you know, distributors of, of goods in the U.S. had it was a, it was a difficult two to three months. But now that we're back on track, one of the things I think that um, it's very, very important to go find places where that disruption is not going to occur. And China being in the middle of the geopolitical discussions, that's that's always a potential for disruption. So I do say I think Africa does, you know, have an opportunity to slide in there. American business has always been in Africa, Exxon, Mars, Walmart with MassMart, and they remain committed to the continent. Now COVID's disrupted the global supply chain and African unions demanded a new paradigm. Do you think there's even bigger opportunities now with Africa having the biggest workforce in the world for American business to work in Africa? I'll give you an an example. So uh, Lando Lakes is a Minnesota uh, cooperative development. It worked with farmers uh, in, in America, people know Land O'Lakes butter. Uh, it, it's a, a you know almost historic uh, uh, product uh, that, that that people you know they they, they all know the label. Uh, but Land O'Lakes has been operating in Africa, and in the beginning, Land O'Lakes operated like a lot of companies early on, is in you know, looking to kind of bring refrigeration in some form, you know, to Af- local African farmers. Uh, so that their product can be preserved and then eventually can be sold. But but they have moved. They moved beyond a certain point in time. They said, you know, and they said this to me uh, with Hogan Lovells, uh, Senator, we, we want to commercialize. We want to get involved in more commercial activities. You know, we've done the the uh, you know the public good. Now we beyond that. We think there's opportunities to make money, and, and we like to be involved in business in Africa. And so, uh, working with Hogan Lovells attorneys, we actually set them up to invest in in some African. Uh, you know, rural enter- farming uh, enterprises. Uh, and so, you know, they're, they're making money in Africa. And, and I, I would want to say up front that it's one of the things that we at Hogan Lovell have the capacity to do that, that, that we, we always tell folks here when we go in to meet with the senator, one of the best things we have going for us is that we typically say we know your, to, uh, the business of the company that we're representing. We know the business. Uh, and, and so I think we have that opportunity with American businesses that want to get involved in Africa. But I also want to turn it around the other way, that there may be African businesses that want to do more in the U.S. There are certainly African governments who are going to be impacted by U.S. policy, impacted by what the what DFC uh, you know, does in terms of investment, impacted by what USAID does. Uh, and, and so, you know, we are unique, I think, pre- uniquely prepared because of the incredible broad international footprint we have to represent those folks in Washington. Uh, we cover both sides of the aisle. We cover the, the uh, executive, as you've heard from, from Ivan Zapian. Uh, and, and from me, we cover the, the uh, legislative, the House, the Senate. So we think because of our, our 
business savvy, our international presence, and our connections in Washington, uh, we would welcome the opportunity for folks from Africa who want to do business in the U.S. to, you know, to knock on our door because we think we can do a good job of representing their interests. That's fantastic. And of course, as, as the listeners know, we know and understand Africa as well, and we're committed to it. So finally, give me two things those of us outside America should be looking for in the next couple of years, which will change the world, either, either for good or for bad, would you say? Well, listen, the first one, we can't have any conversation at, at, at this time without touching upon COVID. Uh, and, and the question, and, and let me step back, Andrew, because even COVID has become a, a you know, politicized issue in this country. Uh, and so Republicans you know, look at all the demonstrations, uh, both the demonstrations that, that followed tragic death of, 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 of an individual, George Floyd, in Minnesota. Uh, but, re, you know, re, Republicans look at a lot of that and say, you know, we have to have all this social distancing, but you don't have to social distance if, if, you, if, if you're demonstrating. You, you couldn't uh, go into a rally for the president was a bad thing, but, but social, but uh, uh, having a protest. We need to get past the politicization of COVID, uh, get a vaccine, and, and, and pull the world together. It's still having a incredible devastating impact even as we speak here the numbers are rising so i, I don't think we could have a conversation without saying let's get control of this and to the president elects credit one of the first things he's going to do is move forward in the covid space with with the task force the, the second positive thing for our friends in africa uh, and, I, and i'm an optimist as, as you know much as i fought hard you know for for uh, president trump and the republican forces you know, in, in the end, I, I, we do better as a country when we unite and come together. We didn't have a lot of unity, you know, after Donald Trump got elected. If anything, my Democrat friends, you know, talked about the resistance. I don't think Hillary Clinton ever accepted Donald Trump as a president, you know, the Democrat standard bearer four years ago. I'm hopeful that we can actually find some way to get together. And for Africa, one of the, one of the good things is that... This president does have a, a international perspective. This Vice President Biden has an international perspective. I happen to serve on the, as national as chairman of the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition. We're involved in supporting foreign aid. We're involved in supporting food aid. Uh, you know, we look at what President Bush did with PEPFAR in dealing with AIDS in Africa, uh, and 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 we remind people that that that's one of the things that has brought the U.S. you know tremendous support in the African continent. J. George Bush, I think, is still hailed as a hero in the African continent. And what I've seen with the corporate folks is many of them going into Africa in, in a kind of aid perspective to begin with, but then transferring that into a commercial perspective, saying, hey, we want to do business in this fast-growing economy. And so I'm looking at a one-lit, so we get past the COVID crisis, that we then see real opportunity for growth with our friends in Africa, uh, and we do it both for economic reasons, for the business, and I would think geopolitical reasons to ensure that we don't see the tremendous resources, the business opportunities, the resource opportunities in Africa to China. I, I think there's still going to be a U.S.-China tension. Uh, it, it, we may not, you know, see all the Trump tariffs, but but I don't I I, I don't see uh, the uh, Vice President Biden you know, reversing the Trump policies in terms of the U.S., you know, kind of going head to head with China. And so I actually see their opportunity in Africa for U.S. both investment as well as as government, you know, being involved 
uh, because we're not going to, when we start a conversation, we're not going to cede the territory to the Chinese. Yeah, so I, I don't think I have two. I actually only have one. I think however you may measure isolationism and multi, you know, multilateralism, you know, I think if we don't see multilateralism growing in the next couple of years, you know, the globe is in for a world of hurt. I think COVID showed us that. Right. I think COVID showed us that a, a fractured globe could be in a very precarious position in a matter of months. And therefore, I, 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 I would keep a, keep a focus on how, how fast multilateralism, however you do, however you um, however you measure that versus isolationism and look to, towards that to see what the future holds. So this has been a fascinating discussion from somebody outside the U.S. And it seems that, you know, at the end of the day, Things are moving in broadly the same direction, and we should all be able to to work together. And then, particularly in terms of the Africa continent, which has enormous opportunities at the moment for people working together, both within Africa and outside Africa. So, so with that, Senator Norm Coleman and Ivan Zapian, thank you so much for being part of the A Perspective. It was great to talk to you both. Thank you. 